All right, friends. Let's get started. Um, you know, we have we have a rather light topic tonight. I'm sure we'll be solve all the problems, <laughs> all the issues here momentarily. No, we won't. Um, thank you all for being here, and um, it's it's with certain fear and trepidation that we, we even um, delve into um, this topic. So let's pray that the Lord would be with us. Lord, we're grateful that you are our faithful creator, um, and uh, you haven't left us to figure things out on our own, um, but you have revealed yourself to us, and in doing so, revealed ourselves to us. And I pray that tonight you would help us to, uh, like we said last week, to bring into conformity our sense of ourselves with your sense of ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, as we get started tonight, I, I do I do want to acknowledge that... Oh, I don't know. Is this on? It is. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Is there a red light? Sure. Yes, there's two, three red lights. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to acknowledge that, that um, you know, this topic's one we can be, can be difficult to talk about in our cult- cultural context, and... I think conversations about gender and sexuality sort of are fraught with um, some misunderstanding. And um, I think, you know, one of the reasons is gender and sexuality have become, uh, you know, the focus of discussions about identity for a lot of people. And uh, in other words, increasingly one's sense of self is directly tied to gender and sexuality. And... um, and also views regarding this have changed rapidly over the last few decades. So, like, terminology is constantly changing. Um, there's um, – so when we have conversations, sometimes we're, we're talking past each other. Um, I think there's sometimes generational gaps even between what, what's being talked about. It's hard, hard for, for people to, to meet on. Um, and, and gender and sexuality are fundamentally relational, right? They have to do with the most intimate of human – Relationships, so uh, you know our discussions can be emotionally charged, um, and I think they can be shaped by awful you know experiences with uh, closest friends and and for many of us our family members, and so um, you know I think we want to approach uh, this topic with a lot of humility and a lot of compassion, and I think in humility in a few ways, a in realizing there aren't simple, one-off answer to some complex questions that people have, right? doesn't mean the Bible doesn't give us ways to reason through things, but it's not necessarily, it's not simplistic for sure. Um, We want to have humility, though, in submitting to our Creator. We want to make no apology that God has something to say. Um, We want to have humility in realizing our limited understanding of issues, right? We don't know all the information about especially all the relational connections that are in, in play in particular situations. And uh, we can't, you know, we need humility and understanding. We can't, like, solve all these issues in one night or even in one semester. <laughs> it really would take at least that long for us to get through these things. So, um, and then we want compassion, right? We want to have love and dignity towards 
everyone that God has made in his image. That would be all humanity. And we want to genuinely love and care about people we disagree with. We want to also be compassionate by longing for people to experience the fullness of what God intends for them. That is compassionate, right? It is loving for, to, to want the best for someone and, and for someone to turn from what's not best for them. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think compassion for those who are just struggling how to know how to best love friends, families, you know, children, um, siblings in, in light of this whole issue. So um, having said all that, we're, we're going to fly tonight. Um, there's a lot for us to get through. And I've like, you know, I, I, as you know, after last week, I terribly underestimate, you know, how long anything takes. So um, we're sort of the idea I've got in mind and what David suggested is we, we kind of plow through for the next like 30 minutes and then leave some time to, to think about questions and, um, you know, some application of some of these things. Um, and, and I think it's important also to start maybe a little confessionally as it relates to the church's um, history with, with sexuality. Uh, you know, from the earliest time in the church, the, the church really did struggle with how to understand how the gospel applies to human sexuality. Um, I mean, early in the church, there was, you know, Gnostic pressures always uh, to, to think about the body as, as sort of inherently bad and sort of the soul or spirit is good. And so um, sexuality got pulled into that where either, either you know, you, you had two extremes. One was, it doesn't matter what you do in your body, do whatever you want, uh, because what happens in your body is sort of irrelevant. Um, it's all going to kind of go away anyway. And then there was another extreme that said, you know, no, we should just severely discipline our bodies to where, you know, um, there would be no uh, sexual expression, like no sexual desire, suppress that entirely, uh, it'd be celibate. Um, and, and, you know, but neither one of those were great reactions. Um, and they, they weren't really rooted in a, in a helpful understanding of, of, of Scripture, for sure. And, um, and, and, you know, you have this, this notion that virginity or celibacy gives you a sort of greater level of connection to God, um, sort of a higher spirituality is, is attained through that. And it, it, was, it wasn't too long in the history of the church where you had leaders in the church expected to be celibate um, in order to even qualify for office. So bishops early in the church once you had a, a, a sort of a distinction between a bishop and an elder, which you know we don't buy into, but that that did happen in time, um, that that became a celibate position. I was a thousand years before priests were expected to be celibate, but that's no story. Um, in the church fathers, you you have complex, complicated relationships with sex. I mean, Augustine's a famous example of that. I mean, he he is torn up with grief, uh, with um, with guilt over any sort of sexual desire, and it keeps him from marrying, even though he has a kid, and and, and a concubine, which is it's just it's complicated with Augustine, and he doesn't know what to do with it, and and you know, he, in his commentary on Genesis, you know, he wants to argue that like Adam and Eve, uh, if if they had not sinned, they would not have had sex, um, and 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 so. So sex is something that's sort of a necessary evil after the fall. Well, that, that, that tradition kind of makes its way in through, throughout, especially Western Christianity, uh, at, in unhelpful ways. Um, you know, then when after, after Christianity is legalized, you have monasticism, which comes into play, and the monastics are, are looking for a way to sort of 
have persecution from within because they saw how persecution purified the church. But they don't know what to do when you don't have those pressures. So this, this, this expectation that I'll bring sort of this aestheticism on top, upon myself included a denial of, of sexual relationships at all. And so, so you had this elevation, uh, you know, of celibacy uh, over a married lifestyle, which was really unhealthy for the church, and it, it creates a lot of angst in 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 the church's uh, dealing with with sexuality. And I will, you know, and I think too, what happens is you have female female participation in the church is drastically changed because of that. So when you have these men that are like celibate saying that's a higher form of spirituality, theology is taking place by and large in monasteries apart from female influence. Okay, so you don't, you don't have married people for one thing doing, doing theology, right? And, and you don't have women participating in, in theological reflection, which while there's appropriate ways, like we, we would obviously think, think of... Um, that, that women have an appropriate, distinctive place to do theology in the church, they still have a place to do theology and should be reflecting theologically. And to shut out females from that was, was not helpful for the church, um, I don't think. Um, anyway, fast forward to the you know, Reformation, you know, they, they do away, uh, you know, they, they discover, wait a minute, you know, God intended for marriage to be a good thing enjoyed by all that he has called to that, including leaders in the church. And so Luther and Calvin take spouses. Calvin almost does so because he feels obligated to, which is, I'm sure, an interesting situation. But, but, um, but you know, they, they, they embrace the, the fact that God has intended for, for, you know, has called many, if not most, Christians to be, and leaders in the church to be married. They're still, uh, they still hold on to, like, you know, the perpetual virginity of Mary is something still Luther and Calvin were very much for, so there's, there's still a holding on of, of some of these notions. Um, and so I think as we kind of come into the, the 20th century, we do have some, some baggage we're carrying as, as members of a church community that has a long history uh, that's often troubled as it relates to human sexuality. Um, and I think, you know, to speak personally, I don't know about you guys, I mean, I grew up in a, a pretty fundamentalist context where I think, like, I, I, by far it would be worse for me, you know, to sleep with my girlfriend than to kill someone. Like, I, I, I literally think that's probably, that, that's how I was raised to think about sex. And that, that's problematic, right? I mean, that, that, that has all sorts of problems. And, it, and, and I think we recognize that. Um, yeah, and, and, and I think we, we also don't need to overestimate some, some of the ways that the church has treated um, gay people, homosexual people, over the, the last several decades. When, when you, um, the, the church by and large did not stand up for, for instance, when, when you had gay people who were not allowed to have jobs, you know, would be kicked out of their job because of they were gay or something like that. You, I think the church failed in their in their their their, their protection right of, of the dignity of that person, um, while while still maintaining a, a, an appropriate recognition of the inappropriateness of the lifestyle, but still protecting the dignity of the person. The church, I think, in in doing so, I think the church set up a situation where you 
you know, today there's an understanding of like sexuality is like sort of who I am, like this ontological view that I think is, is distorted. But I would argue, I think the church is in many ways kind of responsible for that in, in the way decades ago of, of not protecting the dignity of these people. And we could talk further about that sometime. But I, but I do think that the, the church is, there's some responsibility for the, the moment we're in of the confusion because we didn't speak with, with clarity um, in, in those ways. Anyway, um, all that's big, just super introductory. Um, we're going to look um, tonight, we're not going to focus so much on, um, I guess, the ways the culture around us is sort of getting things wrong. I mean, there's certainly ways we could critique some of the logic around us. For instance, I think, you know, in gender studies, you see this this idea that sort of gender is not a binary. It's like this, you know, sort of, it takes place on this sort of continuum. Yet, I mean, the whole idea of transgender is built on the idea of a binary, right? Like, you, you, I'm not this, I'm that, right? And I need my body to match this or whatever. Like, you, you get that's a contradiction, Right, so so even within gender studies, it's it's muddled. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem logically consistent, um, and and I think it's it's also interesting to me that we coming you know we're in sort of a materialist world, right? Where where there's a denial of of something beyond what we can see, observe, natural phenomena, right? There's no spiritual or something like this, um, yet. The idea that you can transcend your body, right, doesn't fit with that materialist viewpoint, right? So how? Do, anyway, so there's inconsistency. There's, there are ways that we could sort of look at, I think, the presuppositions of the modern, you know, prevailing viewpoints towards gender and sexuality. I don't think that's necessarily what we want to do. Though. We're going to look at it from a more theological standpoint, from a more biblical standpoint. Um, and and then if we want to see how those things sort of apply to to the cultural moment, I think that's that's fine. Um, I think defining terms is helpful, right? I mean, right off the bat, you know, sex, gender, and uh, and sexuality have there's distinctions these days between these terms. Sex and gender they're often still used together, and it has to do with sort of the biological distinction between. What, what is male and what is female? Okay, biological, physiological distinctions. I mean, there, you can still, by and large, look at someone's DNA and know if it's female or male. Right? They're, they're, that, that's just, you know, d- despite how you might want to get around these things, there, there are fundamental building blocks that, that are male and female. My, my um, uh, friends that are in the hard sciences are always having, like, these... these arguments with the people in the sort of social sciences because they're like no look we do biology like trust me that you can see there's one or the other like you can't you can't you know and and so it's interesting to see even within the sciences sort of these these arguments but um sex and gender refer to that but gender often there's a distinction made of of more of the the way in which culture uh social sort of expression of of sex what we think of maleness or femaleness and sexuality has to do with the way in which we relate sexually to one to one another including how how we procreate but also sort of um erotic desire right so 
anyway, just a brief thing I've turned. By the way, I have a, a helpful resource. Um, I think the Diocese of Sydney in Australia did, did an excellent job in a paper that they wrote on, on God's, you know, on Christian understanding of, of gender. Um, and I would, I'll, I'll make that available to you guys if you like. I think it's helpful in getting to some of those terms. All right, well, let's get into some of, I'm, I'm going to look at sort of three main broad strokes as, as a framework for thinking biblically, for thinking theologically about gender and sexuality. And I, and I realize those things are distinct, right, gender and sexuality, but, but we are going to, they're related, Okay, and so we, we are going to think about those in, under the same rubrics as we go, go through. And the first point that I want to make is that my gender and sexuality are not my own. Okay. So we're going to talk about gender and sexuality as something that is oriented towards and for others. Okay. And this, this goes to the very root of what it means to be human. Right? So um, as we understand that we are in the image of God, and God is triune, okay? Now, that has some consequences for how we think about ourselves. And, um, you know, to not, not get too, you know, in the weeds, but, um, you know, the Trinity is, is, is who God is. There's not, like, a God behind the Trinity. Like, you know what I mean? There's not, like, this one divine substance that is something above and beyond Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know God by Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is who God is. That's the who of God. Um, and, and we don't, um, we also know that who God is inside himself, inside, within the Trinity, who God is, we call that God ad intra, okay, God within himself, is who he is ad extra, who he is outside of himself. So the way in which God acts towards us, the way we see him move in creation and redemptive history is really who he is. He's not somebody different than that. Okay, so we call the way that God works, the, the way we see the Trinity work through creation and redemption, we call that the economic Trinity, the, the way that we see versus the imminent Trinity, which is God within himself. Right. So there's a correlation between those two. So that means that whenever God creates something. He's doing something outside of himself. We know that's actually how God is inside himself. And we see this as the Trinity unfolds throughout the scripture, that, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always oriented outside themselves towards the other. So it's the Father's great joy to, um, to love the Son, to give the Son all things. It's the son's great love, great great joy, right? To to um, to give to the Father all things. <laughs> to uh, it's the great joy of the Holy Spirit to to um, to distinguish the Son. Uh, I mean, there, there's all this working out that goes on within the Trinity, and we we see that none of none of the persons of the Trinity do anything for themselves. Okay, that's always oriented outside themselves. So what that means, there's a principle for what it means to be human in God's image, and that's namely that we were created to be oriented towards and for others. Okay, we're never meant to be within ourselves. In fact, Luther you know, famously describes sin as a turning in on ourselves. Right? What it means to be human is to go outside ourselves. The basic form of humanity is to be outside ourselves. Well, how does this play out in creation? 
Well, it plays out in male and female. Okay, the the fundamental basic form of humanity is one of being of having an other built into it. Right? There's a male and there's a female, and it's a binary. I mean, there, there's that. The God makes it pretty clear, right? Um, and so the other is is who we encounter, and and built into our very structure of ourselves is a reflection of the way God is oriented outside of himself, okay? Um, we see this in Genesis 2. When, when, when this, this is played out, right, what happens when, when God comes to, you know, creates Adam, and everything's been good so far, then what does he say? Something's not good. What's not good? It's not good for man to be alone, so I'll make a helper, interesting, helper, um, in in the Old Testament, there's uh, it's only used of, of a few people. It's used of the, the the woman, and guess who else it's used of most often? God. I look to the I look to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help is the Creator of heaven and earth. Right. Um, so helper is not designed as like is not to be viewed as something lesser. Okay. It is distinct. Right. Um, and that's where this this suitable for the suitable is a is a is a word that that has to do with symmetry. It has to do with um, something that um, um, correlates to the other, right? Um, so I'm going to make this helper who is suitable corresponds to. And it's from the from Adam from which which so it's fully human, but distinct from, right? In fact. There, I think I think this is true, it's, it's a good, I, and I, I believe this is true, is that, look, Genesis 1 says, when God created humanity, he created a male and female in his image. So when we have Adam before Eve, we really don't have humanity yet. There's a sense in which Adam isn't human until Eve is created. That, that, that Eve becomes, now we have another. Now we have what God intended humanity to be, that is, I can be oriented outside of myself towards another, like me, but distinct from me, right? And, and, and hence, you know, the, the, the verb or the, the nouns change, right? The male and female in chapter one is generic. It's used of the animals, but in, in Genesis two, we have the, the man and the woman, right? They're, they're human terms for gender distinction, right? Um, well, how are these differences express between male and female. How is it that they're oriented towards and for the other? Well, interestingly, the Bible leaves that kind of open. Um, there, there's not, and I always get nervous when you, when you see discussions that are like, um, here's, here's what uh, biblical womanhood or biblical manhood have to be. And I was, that's not to say there's not specifics involved. But they're less, what we can't say is like, well, a woman is fundamentally nurturing, uh, stay-at-home, uh, passive or something, and a man is fundamentally hunter-gatherer, aggressive, whatever. I mean, that could be true, I suppose, but that's just, that's not something I would, I would understand a scriptural basis for. The, the beauty, I think, of the, the gender distinction in the scripture is there is there is a way in which this is expressed situationally. Like, 
you know, uh, let's see. In uh, I suppose there's time in human history when um, men were are inherently stronger, and uh, and so when you needed protection, there was a role for a man to come in and say, "Hey, the way I can serve my spouse, my wife, the the female, is by by doing this." Right? There was a time for most of the world's history when women were limited, at least. I mean, to be to be you know perfectly honest, right? At least once a month, where there was difficult to get out of the house, and. What you know, so this would change in, in the ways in which men and women would would interact, and and how it I could love and serve the other. We find ourselves in a unique time in human history, right? Where where some of the necessity of of, of strength of of some of those things have changed, um, and so it, it is difficult sometimes for us to navigate these things. But but the. In other words, we're we're really dependent, I think, on God's Spirit to help us understand what this looks like. Okay, and well, well there's so much more we can say about that. We're not going to say that right now. Um, certainly, we God wants us to maintain these distinctions. He doesn't want these to be blurred. Okay, but how those distinctions are enacted in particular situations certainly can change. Um, sexuality also ends up being oriented towards the other. Now, how do we first see sexuality in, in the creation narrative? They knew they were naked? Yeah, even before that, right? It's in Genesis 1, in the mandate, he creates a male and female, and he says, then you have the creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, right? So already, this is the first allusion to... Now, I, I think being fruitful, multiply can include more than just having children, but it certainly includes having children, okay? Filling the earth, like this is, you know, this is, this is clear from the scripture. So right off the bat, the first reference to sexuality is something that is oriented outside of itself for another, right? And if, you know, I was reminded of this this morning. I was, I, I was having... A, uh, I took Henry to school, and we went to Panera to get a bagel, and and um, I had to like I spent time like buttering his bagel, cutting it up to give it to his four, um, and and I was reminded like me getting a bagel on my own would be a lot different, but the fact the fact of the matter is the the procreation that takes place in the context of covenant relationship changes the way in which I am oriented, the way in which I live my Everyday life and eat my breakfast, right? Um, that's that's God's design, okay. Um, we all and, and it involves the whole network of those relationships. So how, I mean, you know, it's not just. I mean, like, it, it has to do with the way we take care of children in the church. It has the way. I mean, there there is an orientation towards the other that is the result of sexual relationship. Um, but sexuality is also oriented to the other within a certain relational context, and it's a covenantal context, covenantal, covenant's order, the way in which sexuality happens in the scripture, right, as we, as we see. Um, I think Genesis 2.24 tells us about that and then how that unfolds to the rest of the scripture. There's all sorts of relationships between men and women. There's mom and son or father and daughter, right? There's siblings, there's co-workers, there's 
people in church. There's you know, it's all manner of male and female relationships. But God is ordained. God has ordained covenants to 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 structure those relationships, to give to give to define how those relationships work. And in the scripture, as the scripture unfolds, we see that sexuality is expressed within covenant marriage relationship, right? There's distortions of that all through the scripture, to be sure, right? But, but that's the fundamental context in which God ordains that. And that's also, it's, 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 it's ruined by sin, right? We get this, right? Sin does throw a wrinkle on things, right? I mean, it throws a wrinkle in the relationship between the, the distinction of male and female, right? It, it makes that relationship problematic where it's hard to navigate how it is I love and serve the other, right? It, it creates, sin just creates all sorts of roadblocks in that way. Um, desires are disordered as a result of the fall, including sexual desires, right? So, so that I can't trust my desires to be in conformity with God, right? My desires won't necessarily won't naturally be for what's best for my spouse, right? So sin ruins things, um, but in the curse they're also oriented towards Christ. Interestingly, what happens in the in the curse is there's a promise, right, that your seed will crush the serpent. So within the, the, the dysfunction that the fall brings about, there's a promise that through the ongoing procreation, the ongoing express, sexual expression within covenant marriage, that's going to lead towards redemption. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. It's also regulated then by the law. The law comes in because we need regulation. We need to be told what it is, how it is we are to relate to one another in a, in a post-fall world. Right? And the law tells people what it means to be uh, oriented towards and for the other in a particular place, in a particular time, for a particular group of people. Right? And, and so we, we now, um, and, we, and we have to understand God's rules about sexuality are not like arbitrary. Not God like God's like, I think I'm just going to put this boundary here. No. These things are expressions of the way in which God has create, structured creation to be, right? So this is how things work the way in which God intended for them to be. So when we encounter God's commands about sexuality, right, they, 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 they're not arbitrary. There's a, there's, a, there's a logic behind them, and it's rooted in the way in which God's created us to be, oriented towards and for the other in covenant relationship. Um, I think I think First um, Corinthians seven does just a really great job of of, of 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 expressing that. I mean, what what happened? You know, we many of you were in our study on First Corinthians on Sunday mornings, and in chapter seven, there's this there's this interesting bit about how you fulfill your the the translations get get interesting there. Your marital um, responsibilities or rights for the other. And as we unpacked that, right, we saw that the way in which Paul envisions sexuality is that I'm oriented towards what the other needs. I, I don't have a right in marriage to get what I want. I have a right to give what the other needs in marriage. Right? So 1 Corinthians 7 is instructive in that way, and it's not arbitrary. 
it's beautiful in structuring, in, in showing us God's creative purposes for sexuality. Um, last thing, real quick, uh, along this idea of being oriented toward, for the other, you know, sexuality is not compartmentalized, okay? It's, it's part of a broader virtue, okay, of life, right? So part of the, the, way, the way God is transforming us, right, is we don't need a little rule for every little thing. He's teaching us how to be a particular way, right, oriented outside of ourselves. And this is going to include our sexuality, but it's include all other categories. And I think sometimes... I know. Look, I'll, I grew up in a. And maybe we shouldn't get political here, but I grew up in a in a in a pretty strong, you know, Republican God and Jesus sort of, uh, and 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 country sort of place, and I was. I it was weird. It was incongruent to me the idea that the highest good is like your personal autonomy, and my stuff is my stuff. And by the way, I'll shoot you if you come after it. Yet. Sexuality is somehow oriented within these boundaries, right? That, that's not how this works, right? Part, part of the confusion that we have in the church about sexuality is because we're not consistent in the ways we think about the way in which life works is oriented outside of ourselves for the benefit of the other. It is not for me. I don't get to keep my stuff. That belongs to the community. I don't, you know, personal autonomy is not the highest good, right? Um, that th- those those. So I, I just I want to bring that, you know, mention that because I do think that that causes some cognitive dissonance with people when you see some people standing up like I can do what I want, but by the way, you can't sleep with that person. Well, that's not how that works. There's a virtue of being oriented towards the other that expresses itself sexually for sure, but it's got to be consistent. Second, second category I want, I want to talk about, and, and this one might be maybe the most, most difficult one, is the, the figural nature of gender and sexuality. And I think we have a hard time in our, um, in our culture to understand the significance of signs and figures in relationship to reality. You know, we, we kind of prefer a, a, what we, you know, a more straightforward communication, a, a sort of direct verbal explanation of things, and I think worship in sort of contemporary Western society has, has, is somewhat responsible for this. We've lost the, the notion of how, of how figures work. I'll give you an example, like the sacraments themselves, right? Like sacraments point to a reality beyond themselves, yet participate in that reality, Right? And, and when we, in, in, in sort of, at least, again, I grew up in a more Baptist-y sort of flow, where, where you didn't have a notion of, of how this is, there's a reality that's going on here that you can't see except via this sign. God is present at the table, right? Through this sign, it doesn't have to, it doesn't magically become body and bread of Christ, but, but uh, body and blood of Christ, but we by partaking this, are partaking of the body and blood of Christ, right? That's hard for us to get our heads around. Um, but that, that idea of, of this um, sacramental reality, and, you know, even the notion of why, why do we use bread and wine? Why not use crackers and, you know, or, or potato chips and Coke, you know, whatever. There's, I don't know, there's a reality behind the sacrament that is, 
that, that, that we don't necessarily have access to. We don't know why God ordained these things. We have some, some, some interesting ideas about that. But, but that's what God ordained. There's a metaphysic. There's a logic that is not of this immediate world. It's, it's, it's beyond the thing. We see this in Scripture, right? The Scripture has always been understood to have layers of meaning to it, right? And, and so, and we see this in the New Testament use of the Old Testament, right? We saw this in 1 Corinthians 10, right? The rock was Christ, right? It has, the, what was going on in the Old Testament had a meaning beyond itself, right? That, that finds, finds fulfillment in Christ, Right? And in fact, the scripture itself, as the words of the word, the one who created via his word's word, the scriptures are not like subject to reality. So the scriptures are reality, right? They, they, they give birth to reality. What, what we see around us is, is governed by the reality that the scripture gives it. So I th- we see this as it relates to gender and sexuality, our, our, um, our existence is meant to reflect a reality beyond ourself, right? Individual existence in of itself is not ultimate. It's what it speaks to beyond itself. And we see this explicitly in the scripture as it relates to marriage. Where, where would we see that? Ephesians 5, right? All this, all this instruction about how it is that wives are to um, act towards their husbands, and husbands are to act towards their, li- their wives, and this whole bit. And then what does he say? But I'm speaking of a mystery, right? I'm speaking of Christ and his church. So there's a, there's a figural relationship between how husband and wife relate to each other. So there's roles that you take, not because... Not because, um, you know, the, 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 the submission is not rooted in something ontological, like somehow the, the woman is lesser or somehow, you know, whatever. It's a role that one takes in order to express a reality beyond itself. The way in which a husband self-sacrificially loves his wife is rooted in a reality beyond itself. We're playing, we're, we're, that's why we call it gender roles, really, because the role is related to a reality that we're expressing beyond ourself. Sexual, sexuality is a part of that. So um, sexuality, I mean, Ephesians 5 certainly gives, gives voice to that. The one flesh has to do with the sexual union. But there's... Um, uh, there's there's more than that. I mean, Genesis or First uh, Corinthians eight or what six? Yeah, First Corinthians six. I mean, Paul teaches there that sexual unions are only intelligible in light of our union with Christ. So to be joined to a prostitute, which I understand Paul to mean to to use someone sexually, to to to, to uh, use someone as a means of fulfilling a fleshly sexual desire, that's incongruent with our union with Christ. So sexuality is only to be experienced in the context of covenantal self-giving because that corresponds to union with Christ. That's the logic that's going on there, right? Sexuality has a particular place, a particular expression of covenant relationship. And then one other, one other thing I do, I do want to mention about, about figural relationship is 
is, is, is all of redemptive history is bound up with sexuality as a figure of God's redemptive work. I mean, what you encounter, you encounter these genealogies, right, at the beginning of the Gospels, at least Matthew and, and Luke, right? And those aren't just, like, throwaway, right? Like, or, or the other genealogies that we see. How is it that Christ came to us in the flesh? It came through the struggle to reproduce in sexual unions within marriage and some with outside marriage, right? It came in this struggle over and against death. And this, so there was this generational cycle that needed to keep going, keep going, keep going throughout history. And that generational cycle was all about prefiguring, pointing to Christ who would come. And it included moms and dads. It also included, um, it included married couples that were infertile. It included married couples that lost children. All this is, is picture. All this is figural of the struggle of the, the cycles of, of, of generational that's going on. It culminates, what, in, in Mary and Joseph who submit their sexuality to God's purposes, right? So it includes, it includes single people that, that never have the opportunity to, you know, God hasn't called them to, to, to have children, both married and single people in that way. Right, so it's the whole community that's involved in that ongoing generational movement towards Christ, and we understand ourselves to sit inside that still, as we not only act that out looking back, but acting out forward because God has still yet to consummate the full plan. Right, so we we are the covenant is still moving toward through our generations and through our sexual unions within marriage. That the the, the ultimate meaning of sexuality is not in the, the act itself. It's in its place as part of a reality beyond itself of what God's doing, okay, in establishing covenant relationship with his people. That's hard for us sometimes in our day and age to think in those terms, okay? So sexuality is oriented outside, for and towards the other. Gender is oriented outside, for and towards the other, structured by covenants. Gender and sexuality find their, find their ultimate meaning not in and of themselves, but in of what they're pointing to, the reality behind the thing. And the last thing we'll talk about, because the last thing we really have time to talk about, is, is the embodiedness of gender and sexuality. So um, Christianity has, has, has traditionally taught a, a duality, okay? We exist, we're bodies and souls. But we're not like... Bodies over here, souls over here. There's a unity of body and soul, which is radical, okay? So, and we, we talk about the body of our soul and the soul of our body, okay, in these terms. So, let me talk to you. First of all, souls, we understand to be, be something that's immaterial, something that, that is, uh, in, in fact, we, the, the scripture is, is, it uses the same term we translate soul sometimes in the Old Testament of animals, um, but we would describe souls, human souls, as being what we call spiritual souls. That is, they are they correlate to God. They're able to to relate to God in a unique way. We we can't really put our finger on that. We don't know how all that works. We just know it does. But we also are embodied, right? We're 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 in bodies, um, and 
the rational soul expresses itself in bodies. Part of a rational soul is what we think of as intellect. It sort of corresponds to that. It doesn't always. Um, not at all points in life and not in every life. But generally speaking, human nature exhibits our ability to relate to God through intellectual activity. Um, the, the church fathers will say a lot about our, uh, the diff- you know, we walk uprightly. That's a big deal. That's a big, that's a huge uh, piece of like embodied theology throughout the first thousand years of the church. That's why like the Orthodox don't, don't sit down during their services. Like, it's God created us upright. Um, fascinating <laughs> uh, stuff that we could get into. But we're not, this, this connection between body and soul is we're, we're the, we're the, not only is the body sort of the house of the soul, that's the, but we're the soul of the body. In other words, our soul is connected to our body in such a way that it doesn't operate independently of it, and its identity is not independent of it. Okay, Who we are at our core is not somehow distinct or separate from our body. It always includes our body. That's why you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians will say, hey, I don't, you know, dying is fine, but that's, that's great, but I, I will be longing for the tent for, to get back into embodied existence. Right, First Corinthians 15 is so important in that. Right, God has intended humanity to live in embodied existence. So why we don't saying we go to heaven is really not all that helpful. Um, we are meant for a resurrected resurrection, right? Um, and so we are in we're the bodies, right? And by the way, those are those are Christological claims about body and soul. Well, the reason we have that theology is because that's who Christ. That's how Christ came. He was a human body and a human soul. Okay. Um, he, because, as the old the axiom is, whatever has been ruined by the fall uh, can only be perfected if, by, by what is assumed. Right? Christ has to assume every aspect of human existence in order to redeem it. And he does, in fact, do so. Body and soul. Um, and Christianity then holds not only that, but that God is involved in Every creation of every human life, every human life that comes to in existence, right? God is intimately, personally involved in, and that's that. That's good news, and that's that's also sometimes hard for us to, to understand because that also includes the limits of those lives. We talked a little bit about that last week. We'll talk more about that, right? Um, I, I, you know, I'm still living in that. Like ten weeks for right. Twins, right? I don't like that. You know, that's, that was the limit. Um, but God, God is intimately involved in the creation of each of those, and it includes the bodies. So there's some, there's some repercussions of that. Those bodies are given to be received. Right? We, don't, we don't have mistake bodies. No, we have bodies that are affected by the fall, okay? So, so we have... There's, there's things that bodies don't always work how they're supposed to, right? Body, bodies, you know, we, so, so we're, we have this conflicted bodily existence, but that is not outside the scope of God's intentions. Um, God has created us embodied, and he has given us the body to be received with gratitude and to be used for and towards the other. It's not for our own benefit. It's not to be disposed of however I see fit. It's supposed to be disposed of according to how God sees fit. 
And so as we think about things like transgendered and stuff, it's, it's, it, it is true that, that we cannot transcend what God has given us. There's boundaries. Now that, I have, I have transgender friends in, in, in Toronto, and it's, I, I admit it's hard to talk about these things because I, I don't fully relate to, to how they are processing their own bodies, okay? And so as we encounter individuals, I think we have to be very careful and compassionate how we do so. But we're, we also realize that loving people is to be truthful, right? And, and then how God, God you know, works in people's lives is not always, you know, look, God is working on my life, and there's things that I've tolerated that, that God needs to change, in my, you know, that I want God to change, but sort of, you know, for a long time. And sometimes that takes a while. And I think we should be patient with God doing that in people. And I think that's true of our sexuality as well. Our, our sexual desires are disordered by the fall. And, that, and sometimes we, we, we jump, we skip over our own distorted sexual desires as sort of as heterosexual, right? Look, none, none of our sexual desires are ordered properly. Um, none, of us, none of us always want the best for our spouse and covenantal relationship all the time and think of our sexuality in that way, right? Um, but, but there are people who are same-sex attracted and... Um, some, you know, that in of itself is a, is a complicated. And there's people who didn't ask for to be to be same sex attracted. Okay, um, but the givenness of of ourselves is to be is to be received with gratefulness and used according to God's purposes. And that includes, by the way, our desires. God doesn't. God's not indifferent to what we desire. That's why he commands us to desire so many things. Desire the sincere milk of the word, right? Um, well, he can't command desires if he doesn't expect these, <laughs> those things to be changed, right? So we do believe that God is in the business of, of conforming desires to his, to his purposes, right? And again, how we approach those is, is, is pastorally challenging and sensitive and takes great wisdom and love, um, but those are realities. All right, so those three categories are kind of hopefully some helpful things to start thinking about as it relates to gender and sexuality. If we had a semester, we would take a few weeks on each one. Our sexuality and gender is not my own. It's oriented outside and towards and for the other. Um, my gender and sexuality is figural. It, it, it is in relationship to a reality beyond itself. And my sexuality is embodied and my gender is embodied in a body that's been given to me expressly by God to be received with gratitude. Um, I think those are conceptual frameworks for us to start thinking theologically, biblically about these categories. Okay, well, I know that we're, I know, sorry, I, mean, I meant to end up 15 minutes early. Here's what I think we can do. Well, let's do this. If yeah. you've got, you got a kid. Yeah, feel free to go. You probably need to go.